This morning we will be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 8. This chapter is a pivot in the history of Israel. We move from the period of the judges throughout the book of Judges and the early portions of 1 Samuel to Israel moving into a monarchy, which we will see for the rest of 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings. But there is much more for us to learn from our Lord than merely about forms of government. And so I would ask that you give particular attention to the word of the Lord. For the word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. 1 Samuel chapter 8. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel. And the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves." And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, 
He repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that you would reach us with your word. For Lord, we are in need of your wisdom. We are in need of your truth. We are in need of your empowering word. We ask that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, take root in our lives and show us your majesty. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. There are a great many problems in the world today. This is evident to anyone who looks around and studies the news. But I don't think the greatest danger to the church and to Christians are the problems that are before us. No, I think the great danger for us is in thinking that we know the solution. And this is especially true when our solution is to be more like the world. And so this morning, as we look at 1 Samuel chapter 8, we see what happens when God's people desire to be more like the world. We see how the Lord reacts to their demands. And so we see three things here this morning in our text. First, we see Israel rejecting the Lord. They want to replace God in their lives, and they want to run from who God is. Second, we see the response of the Lord to them. And this is a response that is very surprising. The Lord knows the hearts of His people, and He gives them a warning about where they are headed. And then finally, we see the ramifications of Israel's choice. The ramifications, what will happen to Israel, the consequences because of what they have chosen. Rejecting the Lord, the response of the Lord, and the ramifications of their choice. Let's begin then by looking at the outset of chapter 8. Samuel has become old and he has made his sons judges over Israel. Now, The first thing that we have to understand in this context is that Israel is called to be distinct from the world. And it is a very hard thing to be distinct from the world. Israel had already failed before in the priesthoods of Hophni and Phinehas. They had failed to be different from the world. The priests were just like pagan priests seeking their own gain sinning and doing wickedness. Then later in chapter 4, we saw Israel thinking about God the same way that pagan peoples thought about their idols. They sought power 
from God. They thought they could bring the ark and that would give them power, just like the way pagan gods brought power, supposedly, to the nations. Over the last 20 years, we've seen that they have been giving in to false gods. They have been worshiping Baal and the Asterisks. So they have failed to be distinct from people around them. And to this end, leadership is crucial. It was Hophni and Phinehas that had led them astray and led them in the pursuit of wickedness. And we saw in last chapter 7 that Samuel was able to bring the people of Israel back to God through his godly leadership. And so Samuel has a plan. He has high hopes for the future of Israel. He hopes to have his sons judge Israel when he is gone. And we see his high hopes even in the names of his sons. Joel means the Lord is God. Abijah means the Lord is my father. So you can see a father's hope for his sons even in their names. But once again we see that we cannot trust in men. For Samuel, like all men, is mortal. And he's growing old. But further yet, we see in verse 3 that his sons are wicked. They do not walk in his ways. They seek bribes. And they pervert justice. And so the elders of Israel come up with a solution. Their solution is a new form of government. A monarchy. And their proposal is born out of fear. Remember, the Philistines are still on the border. They are still a threat to Israel. And we also learn from 1 Samuel chapter 12 that the Ammonites are threatening attack. In 1 Samuel 12, Samuel is recounting this day. And he says, it is a day when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you. And you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us. So what we see here is a people who are afraid. And their solution is to fix the government. Now, this should sound a bit familiar to our ears. Because the people of God are often afraid in our world today. We're afraid and we think, well, if we could just fix the way we're ruled, if we could just get a better form of government over us, if we could just throw all the bums in Congress out and get new, good congressmen, if we could just get a new president, if we could just get new local authorities, then everything would be right. But you see, there's a problem with this kind of thinking. Because what it does is it replaces our thoughts for God's presence and means. And we see that there is a connection here with chapter 2. You can't help but read this, and as you see Samuel with wicked sons, but to think of Eli and his wicked sons. But I don't want you to jump to a conclusion because the conclusion you will jump to is the people of Israel understand this. And so therefore they want a different form of government to avoid Eli's sons and to avoid 
Samuel's sons. The people of Israel aren't thinking about this at all. How do I know this? Well, if your concern is that sons won't follow in the way of their fathers, that sons will not be godly like their fathers, that sons will not rule well, why would you ask for a system of government that is hereditary? Passed down from father to son to son. You see, we see the connection because our author gives it to us. But Israel doesn't. They think they've hit upon an innovative solution. It's groundbreaking. It's breathtaking. This will solve all of our problems if we only have a monarchy. Now, I also don't want you to make another mistake. Sometimes we look at this passage and we think that having a king is bad in itself. And we look at this and we say to the elders of Israel, Dummies, don't you know that the only form of government that works is a democracy? that's proportional and representational? Don't you know that's the only form of government that God thinks we should have? You see, we import our culture into the text. Now, I want you to know that God does not say that kings in and of themselves are are evil. As a matter of fact, God had given them provisions for what a king was to do and how he was to serve before this day. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, he gave them instructions. He said, when you come to the land that the Lord is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it and say, I will set a king over me. Now stop for a moment. You notice that God says when. He doesn't say if. Now I don't know whether that's because God is sovereign and he knows all things and sees the future? Or whether it's because God sees deeply into our sinful hearts and knows exactly the kind of people we are, or probably both. But God knows they're going to ask for a king. And he says, Your king shall not be like all the nations that are around you. Only from among your brothers shall you set a king over you. You shall not set a foreigner over you. And then there's a long detailed list of all of the things that the king may not do. He may not accrue to himself horses to think that military power is overwhelming. He may not accrue to himself many wives that politics might be seen as the solution. He is not to accrue to himself much wealth to find his purpose and hope in money. No. You see, having a king might not be the best choice for Israel. But that's not the problem. The problem comes in the rest of their request. The problem comes in their motive. They ask, appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. You see, Deuteronomy 17 makes clear that the king is not like others. He is the choice of the Lord. He is not a foreigner. He is not to have the normal perks of a king. He is to follow God's law. But you see, what they are doing here right now is they want their help not in God, but in a new government. They want to replace the God who has just rescued them the chapter before. This is not about government This is about idolatry. And in chapter 4, we saw the idolatry of superstition. And here in chapter 8, we see the idolatry 
of politics. So I hope you see initially that 1 Samuel 8 holds a mirror up to us that we can view ourselves. You see, if we think this is about monarchy versus democracy, or if we think this is about hereditary versus elected, then we are able to stand back from the text and to judge the Israelites. And we are defended. We are Teflon proof against the point that the text is making. You see, what the text is telling us is it is not about the form of government. It is about replacing the Lord with something else. And when we look at it that way, we must search our own hearts. Because we are constantly tempted to replace the Lord with something else. What are you really trusting in today? Is your real hope and trust in an insurance policy? Is your hope and trust in your wits? Or your bank account? Or your home? Or your job? You see, our tendency when we address problems, is to look for techniques. We don't look first to repentance. We look to adjustment. So what happens to us is this. Let's say, for example, that we have a financial crisis in our family. Is your very first thought to cry out to God to repent of your sins that have brought you to that crisis and to trust Him in faith to carry you along? Or is your first thought, you know, if we just had a better budget, everything would be fine. As long as we tweak it, we'll be on the right path. You see, our primary trust must not be in techniques. It must be in God. Because otherwise we walk around trying to only find the right method. And then this leads us to telling God how he may help us. We examine to find the right method and then we say, God, I need your help, but let me be quite specific and particular how I want it. I want you to do this and this and not that and this. And we see God as our servant. You see, rather than seeking God, we seek our own methods to be fulfilled by God. We are replacing the Lord. And the real danger here is that our idolatry can seem so reasonable that we fail to see it. What is unreasonable about wanting to have a budget in times of financial difficulty? Nothing. What is unreasonable about wanting a more stable form of government when the enemy is attacking? Nothing. But you see, the problem is, when we put all our hope in those things and we turn away from God, then we have become idolaters. And we can't even see it because we think we're doing the right thing. We need to seek the Lord first. There is a second element to their request, however. You see, God points out to them and to us their idolatry. That they 
want to replace the Lord. But there's more than that. They are running away from God. You see, we see their displeasure with holiness and with the Lord. They don't just want a king. They want a king. Why? So that they can be like all the nations. They want to be like everyone else. Now, this is not just a turn of phrase. This is a passion that they have. They keep coming back to it over and over again. Later, after Samuel gives the great litany of problems with a king, they are very emphatic. I almost imagine, as this conversation occurs, that they shout, No, we shall have a king. Zip it, Samuel. We will have a king. You see, they want to be like the other nations. They want no other option. Now, the real danger here is in verse 20, that God makes them like the nations. He tells them that they will have a king. Now, why are they so passionate about this? Is it because they thought no other form of government would work? Now, it seems actually like an out-of-place request because we just looked last week, they had a military threat against them, and God delivered them. Why would they need something else? Don't they realize? Can't they turn back to their chapter 7 and see what God did for them? The real answer is that they, just like you and me, do not want to be different from the people around us. They want to blend in with the world. Now, at its core, that's what holiness is. It's difference. God is holy because He is other, separate, apart from all His creation. He is so not like man that He is holy. And in Leviticus chapter 19... He calls upon his people. He says, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. We might as well freeform translate that. You shall be different because I am different. This is what the Lord calls his people to. But you see, the temptation for us is we want to fit in, don't we? We want to belong. We don't like the odd stairs. We don't like the whispers behind our back. We don't like to be thought as being odd or different or troublesome. And this is perhaps the greatest danger for the church of God today. You see, the church wants to be relevant more than it wants to be holy. The church wants to be respected and well thought of more than it wants to stay true to God's word. And so what we have here is we see churches today abandoning the truth of God's word. Now, this is true of the church. But more than that, it's true of us, isn't it? We engage in certain actions. We speak a certain way. And we do this to fit in. It is a great temptation that we face. And this is a greater danger, especially for young people. 
Not because young people are more susceptible to this sin than older people. They're not. But the younger you are, the more the world is changing around you. The faster the world is changing. Views of marriage. Views of the home. Views of God. Views of church. Views of God's word. Views of what is acceptable behavior are changing faster and faster the younger that you are. And so we must remember that no matter whether we are six or 96, God's call for us is to be different, to be holy. The great Scottish preacher Alexander McLaren puts it well. He says, one of the first lessons that we have to learn is a wholesome disregard of other people's ways. Disregard what others think and will do. Follow the Lord. Well, after we see Israel rejecting the Lord and asking for a king to be like the nations, we then move on and see the response of the Lord. Now, you and I know the problem with this request. It's an attempt to replace God. It's an attempt to distance themselves from God. And even Samuel sees this problem. In verse 6, we are told that this thing displeased Samuel. The Hebrew is stronger. This thing was evil in the eyes of Samuel. He sees exactly what the problem is. And so we know what we expect God to say. No, Israel, you can't have a king. What are you, stupid? Do you want all these bad things to happen to you? There's no way I'm going to give you a king. Imagine fathers on Father's Day. If your children came up to you and said, Dad, we are going to start the cupcake diet. It's a diet we've come up with. Three times a day, all we're going to eat is cupcakes. And we're going to do that for a month straight. Can we do that? Is that a good idea? How are you going to respond? I know how I'm going to respond. No way! What, do you want to get sick? Do you want to kill yourself? Do you want to have diabetes before you're 12? No way! That's how we expect God to react. But God's response is surprising, isn't it? Instead, he tells Samuel to obey the voice of the people. You see, the Lord reassures Samuel that they're not just attacking him. He says, they have not rejected you, Samuel. They're rejecting me. There is a sense in which they are rejecting Samuel, but it is nothing like their rejection of God. And God knows this from their previous actions, from the very first day that they left Egypt. God would have a litany of evidence of all the times they had rebelled against Him. Of all the ways that they had continued in unbelief. Now just think about the wanderings in the wilderness. Think about the time of the conquest with Joshua. Think about the days of the judges. Israel was known as much for rebellion and unbelief as it was for obedience and belief. And so God was not surprised at their request. You see, the Lord knows the sinful hearts of men. 
And so his answer is surprising, but it is also frightening. Do not miss this. The Lord will let Israel experience what a replacement for God looks like. And that should frighten you. Because the Lord sometimes lets us see the harmful consequences of running away from Him. The psalmist writes in Psalm 106, He gave them what they asked for, but sent a wasting disease among them. You see, we tend to think that the blessing of God's response to our prayers is directly related to how much of the things we asked for we get. But the truth of the matter is, we often ask amiss, and God's no is for our benefit and blessing. So we should not be so quick to be encouraged when God gives us what we ask for. It may not be by way of blessing. It may be by way of chastisement. Of God showing us how wrong we are. God is wise that at times He knows we will only learn from experience. But in this response we see not just the wisdom of God, but we see his patience as well, as he gives Israel a warning of the king's ways. Now, the people of God are very stubborn in their request. They will not be moved off their request. We've already seen that they double down on it once Samuel describes what a king will be like. And so there is a theme that runs through this chapter. You see, Samuel was a judge of Israel. And his sons, we are told, perverted justice. And so they couldn't be trusted. And now they want a king to judge them. Do you see the theme? So now God will tell them, verse 11, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. Now, this word for ways has many connotations to it. It is perfectly appropriately translated here, ways. The the means of a king, the, the mechanisms of a king, the life of a king. But interestingly enough, this same word in other contexts means judgments, justice. You see, what God is saying is, this is the justice you're going to get from a king. You want to know what it's like to be judged by a king, I will tell you what it is like to be judged by a king. And Samuel's description of a king is not extraordinary. Samuel is not describing the Paul Pot of kings. He's not describing Stalin. He's describing your average, everyday, run-of-the-mill king. And what he is saying is, is that... This is what kings are like, kings of other nations. And there is a theme that occurs in this. If you look at verses 11 through 17, you will see a theme. He will take your sons. He will take your daughters. He will take your fields. He will take your grain. He will take your male servants. He will take a tenth of your flocks. 
over and over again, six times. The emphasis here is on what the king will take. But it's even more than that. Because you see, one of the things about the Hebrew language that doesn't come through in translation is there is a word that is used to give emphasis to the word that comes after it. And throughout all of this, it is the direct objects that have this emphatic word before them. It's as if Samuel is saying, you know all of your good sons? He's going to take them. You know all your beautiful daughters? He's going to take them. You know those fields you're so proud of? He's going to take them. He's not leaving anything to the imagination. And what he says is, think about all you're going to have to give up. And as if it couldn't get worse, he says, it's going to be like you were back in Egypt. You'll be slaves to him, he says. God is warning them in the strongest of possible terms. But there's something even beyond that in verse 18. You see, he says, the choice you make will put you on your own. In that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. To summarize for modern ears, you make your bed, you lie in it. You see, what you want you're going to get and you're on your own. What they want is to be free from God. And so God says, okay, you want to be free from me? Take a look at what free from me looks like. See how much you like that. And this is so often our experience in the world today. We want to be free from the constraints of God's law. We want to be free from his ways. But what we don't realize is that way simply leads to sorrow and pain. Why should we expect God to honor our choice to be free from him? There is a third and final thing that we see from this chapter this morning. We see the ramifications or the consequences that come to Israel because of their choice. We see that they are intent on foolishness instead of wisdom. You see, one of the things that we find out in this chapter is that information or knowledge is not the answer. Because God has given them all the information they need to make the right choice about a king. And what's their response? Lord, I'm so glad you've put that together for us. We didn't have that in our spreadsheets. So now we're going to update our spreadsheets and we're going to come out with a new output, right? No. There shall be a king to reign over us, they say. It could only be clearer if they had looked at Samuel and said, Samuel, zip it. We want a king. You see, the problem is not with our heads. The problem is with our hearts. The world will sell you the solution of education. They will tell you that education is what we need. Now, if you don't believe me, think back to every political campaign of every party that you have ever heard about in your entire life. And there is always an element that runs something like this. We need more education. 
Education will solve our problems. We need to educate the children, and the children are our future. And if we just have enough education, everything in the future will be good. I don't know about you, but I've been hearing that since the 70s. Some of you have been hearing it longer than that. That's the world's solution. But the real solution is not education. It's repentance. It's faith. That is what we need to have. We'd already been told about Samuel's words that not one of his words had fallen to the ground. And that meant they were God's words. And what could be wiser than God's words? As a matter of fact, Israel had already experienced the pain of ignoring God's words. They had struck out on their own with the ark, you recall, and that was disastrous. But you see, they don't understand. They'd rather be foolish than be wise, because knowledge cannot empower us. Now, education can clarify our thinking. Don't get me wrong, it is better to know than to be ignorant. But education cannot transform us. It cannot change the heart. And it is not enough that we know the truth, beloved. You must love the truth. There is a difference. No matter how much you know, no matter how much you learn, you will not find wisdom apart from the Lord. The psalmist says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And all those who practice it have a good understanding. And so what does that mean for your prayer life today? What it means is stop praying for specific solutions that you want for your problems. Now notice I didn't say stop praying for specific problems. I said stop praying for specific solutions that you have worked up in your mind. And instead, pray for a soft heart. Pray for a teachable spirit that the Lord would come to you, that He would bless you. There is a final thing that is a ramification of their choice. And that is that they receive their desires instead of their necessaries. What I mean is, they get what they want, not what they need. You see, this makes sense because we so often don't know what to ask for. Isn't that true? Romans tells us this in chapter 8. We need wisdom from the Lord. The Spirit has to help us in our weakness, for we don't know what to pray for, but the Spirit intercedes for us. Why should we be foolish and think we know what we need? But this is all too often our focus. We focus on what we want rather than on what we need. And this and our pride leads us to foolishness. Now think about it in something that's trivial. How many things in your life did you absolutely have to have? Kids? You had to have that toy. You couldn't live if you didn't have that toy. If I don't get this toy for Christmas, I'll just die. Right? Young people. I've got to have this college. If I can't go to this college, I may as well just check out. There's no way I can live if I don't get this college. 
Oh, oh, if I don't have the home that I need with the perfect number of bedrooms, if I don't have everything that I need, life's not worth living. If I can't have the perfect job. And then what happens when you get that perfect toy? Maybe it's a week. Maybe it's a month. And then it's found in some corner of your room, right? Amazing how you can live without it. What happens when you don't get into the college you had to get into? Do you wake up in the morning and breathe? Do you eat and drink? Do you go to school? Do you get a degree? What happens if someone else buys your dream home? Do you live out in the rain the rest of your life? No, I think you probably get a different house. Right? What happens if you don't like your job? Well, maybe you change jobs or you move and get a different job. You see... When we think this is something we absolutely have to have and we focus on it, we don't understand what we really need. Israel thought they needed a king who would take from them in order to protect them. They thought that was the only way that they could be safe. And they were willing to sacrifice their relationship with the Lord just so they could be safe. But what they should have seen was that the only place they could be safe was with the Lord. So what should I do? I want to be safe, don't you? I want to have just judgment, don't you? Where do I turn? Where should you turn? First, you have to abandon your own solutions. You have to stop telling God what He must do. You must turn to God to find hope in Him alone, to rejoice that He calls you to be different, to know that He knows you and your heart. Because you see, in conclusion, there is a king who does not take, but who gives. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not from this world. What Jesus is declaring in the Gospel of John is that he is most emphatically not a king like all the other nations. You see, the ways of King Jesus are justice and judgment. Jesus gives to those who trust him by faith. He gives grace. He gives justice. He gives redemption. He has freed us from our sins. He rules over us by protecting us from all our enemies. He calls us His own and He brings us to the Father. There is no greater king that you can seek than King Jesus. Will you seek Him now? Will you find rest and hope in Him alone? This is the call of the Word of God. To reject abandoning God. To reject running away from the Lord. To reject foolishness. To reject our own desires. And to seek after the Lord and His blessings upon us. Let's pray.